You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Johannathan Charvit, a Clojure programmer and author of the book Data-Oriented Programming from Manning Publications. We talk about data-oriented programming, immutability, static and dynamic typing, and whether functions should be considered data. Software Unscripted is sponsored by my employer, No Red Ink. No Red Ink makes software for English teachers, and we're on a mission to help all students harness the power of the written word. We're also hiring, so the next time you're thinking about a change, take a look at noredink.com jobs. And now, our functions data. All right, uh, Johannathan, thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate it. Uh, nice to be here with you, Richard. So you've written this book for Manning on data-oriented programming. And so as I understand it, this is different from, uh, like, there's two unrelated, <laughs> totally unrelated programming concepts. So there's data-oriented programming and there's data-oriented design. And data-oriented design is sort of like a low-level memory optimization type thing. You know, like this kind of C, C++ world comes up a lot in, like, game programming. And then data-oriented programming, as I understand it, is a lot more about... Uh, sort of the the closure philosophy of programming around like just immutable data and minimal ceremony on top of that. And that's what your book is about. Do I have that right? Right. And to make it even even more confusing, there is something called data-driven programming. (laughs) Sure. Which is also slightly slightly different. But let me try to to make things clear. Data as I see it, the goal of data-oriented design is to reduce computational complexity, meaning right. to, to make your program run, your programs run faster. The purpose of data-oriented programming is to reduce system complexity, meaning it will take less brain resources to understand and maintain the program. Nice. Okay, yeah, so, that's, that makes sense. That's a good distinction. And it's two different meanings of complexity. One of them is that the program runs fast, and the other one is that the develop the program is developed fast. Right. And as far as I know, the language that really put data at the center is is Clojure, and it has a unique approach to to data. And what I've discovered after uh, seven or eight years of Clojure is that in fact some of the closure principles in regard to data could be applied to other programming languages. And that's what I'm trying to, att- that's my attempt in the book, to explain closure principles around data in a language agno- agnostic way. Yeah, so one of the things that appeals to me about this sort of idea of, of putting data like front and center and just saying like, this is this is really what it's all about, is your data, is that it sort of implicitly pushes you in the direction of trimming away unnecessary stuff around that. Like I, I remember at some of my past jobs or early in my career, there were a lot of sort of like rituals that we would do. Like the, <laughs> the most obvious one that comes to mind is getters and setters of just like, you know, you, you already have the data and you've already decided that it's going to be publicly accessible, but we're going to wrap the publicly accessible, you know, we're going to make a publicly accessible getter for getting the data and then a setter for setting the data and somehow this is going to be better than than just having the data in a, in a field. Now, setting aside whether, I mean, of course, that was like in Java world. So this is all mutable as well, not immutable. But it always felt like this is an unnecessary sort of premature optimization or, or over-engineering maybe 
for like, well, but just imagine what if at some point in the future you decide that you want this to be a pre-computed value and now you're going to wish you had a getter? Um, or what if what if every time this gets set, you want it to trigger something? Now you're going to wish you had a setter. But looking back, I never did. It was just a huge, you know, <laughs> waste of time. Like in practice, yeah, like I understand in theory that could be useful. But, you know, at some point you got to look at the track record and say like, hey, what if we just did the most basic obvious thing? <laughs> Yeah, by the way, JavaScript did the exact same thing, but in the other direction. So JavaScript from day one, data was first-class citizen. It was yeah. just accessible. You had the curly braces for map literals called objects. Right. Yeah, object literals. Yeah. You just access them. But then after that, they discovered that sometimes you need to trigger some logic when data is accessed. So they added these proxy complicated things. Right. So that's, that's, that's funny to, to think about it this way. Yeah. And I mean, th there are techniques, to be fair, for going in after the fact and saying, I want to, you know, make it so that every single time this thing is updated, you know, I, I want to trigger something or every single time this thing is read, I want it to be pre-computed. But I mean, the techniques that I would use today for doing that is I would start with the most simple basic thing. And then if I needed to introduce that in the future, then I would say, okay, well, instead of using the raw underlying thing, now I'm going to introduce a wrapper around the whole thing. And since right. I've introduced it around the whole thing, I can't accidentally get into a state where I'm using it in the wrong way, because if I'm trying to use it in the wrong way, it's going to, you know, it's going to be missing. Like I'm, I'm not going to be able to access this or, or call this function. That's like, you know, give me the pre-computed uh, version of this field because that's not going to be there on the wrapped version. Or sorry, it's only going to be there on the wrapped version. So if I'm still working with the uh, unwrapped version accidentally, uh, it's not going to work at all. So I won't have any bugs of the form like I'm, I'm using the stale version because I introduced the wrapper. But again, you could do that after the fact. You don't need to do that up front. For me, the reason why the community used to use the uh, getters and setters I think it's related to like a philosophical uh, thing that in object-oriented programming, everything has to be an object and everything has to be accessed via a method. So even data should be this way just to fit into the paradigm. And I think it might be even more specific than that in that I, I guess I don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I have the sense that this is specifically a Java community thing. I, I don't know that this was happening in like C++ or Pascal or like Smalltalk. Um, or Ruby. M maybe it was and I wasn't aware of it, but like my impression was that this was mm -hmm. kind of something that, that came out of the Java world and maybe it was adopted in other places afterwards, but I, I don't know that like, you know, it, it, in small talk in like, you know, the 1980s, they were doing this. <laughs> there is also something I think similar that happens uh, in maybe in functional programming versus object-oriented programming. I remember my frustration when I discovered that in order to do, uh, I don't know, 2 plus 2 in Java, you have to create a class with a method named main. And I don't know, lots of ceremony for, while in JavaScript you want to execute 2 plus 2, you just write 2 plus 2. And in a REPL, yeah. In, in, some, in something. And uh, in fact, JavaScript back in 1995 was quite a, a, mo a very modern programming language. In a lot of ways, yeah. Anonymous functions, right? Data literals. I think it's a one great contribution of JavaScript to the overall uh, programming language ecosystem. I was really surprised that, 
Like I, I learned JavaScript before I learned Python. And I guess I still have not really like properly learned Python. <laughs> it's more just like I, I, I encounter Python from time to time because it's so popular. But I just always kind of assumed that Python would also have an object literal syntax or, or like, you know, record or struct or whatever. No, I, I was very surprised that it's just, you know, it's like arguably the, the most popular language or maybe the second most popular language in the world doesn't doesn't have that at all. There is no literal for dicts in Python? There might be for dictionaries. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I meant, yeah, I mean, I, I was looking up if there's some way to just make like the equivalent of like a of like a, a struct because like they have they have classes and you can you know define structures and stuff like that. Now I'm going to Google this. Is there such thing as a Python dict literal? Oh, looks like there is. Okay. With the curly braces, it's quite similar to... Okay, so it looks like I was just looking for the wrong thing then. All right, today I learned. <laughs> and by the way, I, okay, maybe something else that I learned yesterday or a week ago is that every Python class is baked by a dict. And the dict is accessible. Huh. So you can either access the data via... You, know, you have a class A with a field B via A.B, but you can also do a dot underscore underscore dict underscore underscore and get a. Huh. I did not know that. Which is quite uh, interesting if you need, I don't know, to merge objects or to pick fields from objects or to rename fields from a class in Python. You can do that. Yeah, so this this gets into an interesting, I don't know, uh, I guess difference between certain languages. So one of the things that is interesting to me is the trade-off between performance and wanting to have common data structures that are usable for lots of different purposes. So this is actually a really good example of this. Like the reason that I was looking for uh, Python-like object literals as opposed to Python dictionary literals is that in my mind, there's a really big performance difference between those two. Like in, uh, I'll use rock as an example, like the language I'm working on. Like if, if you make a rock record literal, which is like curly braces, anonymous, you know, it looks just like a JavaScript object literal. Mm -hmm. But what that compiles down to in memory is a struct where it's like, there's no overhead, it doesn't keep the fields at runtime. But that also means you you can't, you know, do dictionary like things on it, you can't merge two of them together, you can't like, say, Oh, I want to, you know, replace this field with a completely different named field. There are operations you can do that sort of have that a similar kind of feel to that, but it's definitely only got a strict subset of the functionality of a, of a real dictionary. But of course, it also runs way faster. You don't have to hash the keys ever. It's just storing things compactly in memory. It's the same overhead as a C struct. Um, and so I was looking for that reflexively in Python thinking, oh, that's what I would want to go for, for performance. But I know that the closure approach is just to say, look, this is, we're not going to bother like trying to chase after that last bit of performance. We're going to say everything's a dictionary or hash map or, you know, whatever. It's, I think it's a, what is it? Hash array map try enclosure, yeah. I think, like the yeah. persistent data structure. Yeah. And just like, that's the primitive and everybody's going to use that <laughs> and it's going to be really simple. Right. There, it's a half true. There is a, a enclosure, there is a slight optimization. If in your, Hash maps, you have less than eight uh, fields, then it's stored in an array instead of. Oh, interesting. Uh, I didn't know that. Binary tree, yes. In order to. And then when you look for a key, you go one by one. There is no hash right. map. It's a linear scan, but yeah. Linear scan, but linear scan less than eight is better yeah. than log scan. 
Right. So we've actually found like working on the rock compiler, we've been benchmarking this and, and it really does depend on the keys. Like if you have integer keys and you're comparing like ha- putting that in the hash map and like doing the hashing and, and all all that stuff versus just having the linear keys like you know d- doing a linear scan it, you have to get absolutely gigantic numbers of keys before the hash map is faster it's it was like really really shocking to us yeah wow yeah but but that's only with like you know like consecutive integer keys like it's it's definitely not the same actually no i don't i don't know if they had to be contiguous at any rate, like this is under like pretty constrained circumstances. It's not like like if you had string keys, that's probably different. We haven't looked at it, uh, tried benchmarking that, but okay, that's that's a cool optimization though. Yeah, but the, I think the, the the true answer is that if you really care about uh, saving another nanosecond, probably you don't need uh, you are not doing data oriented programming. You are doing something <laughs> different, and uh, you better yeah. use different paradigms. Maybe data oriented design or right. What, but from my from my experience, ninety percent of what we do as full stack developers is fetching data from somewhere and doing a little manipulation on it and passing it forward. And usually, the the time it takes to the extra time it takes to to use an immutable data structure instead of a mutable struct is completely irrelevant to the whole process. Here and there, here and there, you need the optimization. And what is great about Clojure is that it allows you to do the optimization. Uh, there is a secret that nobody wants to, to share outside the Clojure community that we, we like to say that in Clojure, you cannot mutate data, period. It's not true. There are non-persistent data structures in Clojure also. And Clojure Core itself leverages them when performance matters. Hmm. Yeah. That's that's interesting. I, I didn't know that. Um, I kind of would have assumed that the only the mutable data structures would be from the Java side of things. Like you would you would have to import like a Java hash map if you wanted to get a mutable hash map. But I guess not. No, there are you can, but there are also it's called volatile. There are volatile closure data huh. structures. And one uh, place where we like to use them. Imagine you want to to count the number of occurrences of elements in an array. So you have an, an array of numbers and you want to count how many ones you have, how many twos, how many threes. So yeah. you're going to do use a reduce to go over the array and pass to each iteration of the reduce a hash map that will grow mm. depending on the element in the counter. This hash map, you don't really need it to be immutable because once the reduce right. is done, the all internal state that you had are gone. Nobody has access to it. Right. So it makes sense to have them mutable, the temporary hash maps, and at the end you return back uh, immutable data structures, and it, you gain twenty uh, percent, something like that, optimization. Yeah, we um. So this is an optimization that we do in in the Rock programming language um, behind the scenes. So basically, yeah. like if you if you write a like we we don't have primitives to say like oh I'm gonna mu- I'm gonna choose to mutate this thing, but rather. Basically, uh, it's able to detect, okay, because this is a whole, whole tangent on like how we do this, but basically, if it's able to detect that, okay, at runtime, nobody else has access to this thing, guess what? Like, nobody's going to notice if we just do the <laughs> mutation in place because it's not observable to anyone else. So we're just going to go ahead and do that. And yeah, it, the, the performance difference is like 
pretty big like because we can we can go to the compiler and sort of like turn that off and we've done that before and it's like yeah for some algorithms in particular it's like it makes a really big difference it reminds me the philosophical question like if a leaf falls uh, in the forest but there is no human does it make a sound <laughs> right right exactly yeah right did you really mutate it did you really mutate <laughs> right <laughs> yeah Yeah, that's a good point. So here's something I'm curious about. So uh, I've watched a lot of Rich Hickey talks. And one of them that I, I forget, it was either speculation or maybe not. I forget which one it was. But but he was talking about data aggregates and how he's kind of a big fan of the idea of like data travels together. You know, aggregate comes from Gregari, which means like to flock together. And, you know, he's got, he's got his like dictionary definitions and stuff. And he was talking about how he sees in the work that he does, like it comes up all the time that he wants to have data stored in dictionaries so that he can use like, you know, set theoretic type operations on them and like merge the dictionaries together and like pull them apart and like do all those, like the kind of the full spectrum of dictionary things. Um, I have not, like in, in the programming I've done, like uh, even like we can use JavaScript as an example. Like certainly when I was doing like uh, functional programming style using immutability a lot, actually still the most starred GitHub repo in my account is uh, Seamless Immutable, which is this library I made for um, doing JavaScript immutability stuff uh, in a way that's like sort of backwards compatible with like normal JavaScript for loops and stuff. Wow. I didn't know it was you. What's the name? Seam seamless, right? Yeah. Seamless Immutable. Yeah. I made that back in like 2013, 2014, something like that. Apparently, it was at some point used in the uh, Firefox debugger by uh, James Long. So that was cool. But uh, anyway, of course, it has the most stars just because it's JavaScript and all my other stuff is like less popular languages. But but whenever I had done that type of stuff in JavaScript, so I had the ability to do all of these like, you know, merging and unmerging of like objects and stuff like that. I just never found myself actually doing that. And I'm wondering if this is like, is it a cultural thing in Clojure or is there like, I don't know, am I missing out on something or like what's, um, I'm kind of just curious, like your your personal, like the way that you use like dictionaries and Clojure is like, do you use them more or less as if they were like records where they just have like kind of a fixed set of fields and you don't really like modify them a lot on the fly? Or do you find yourself doing like merges and like all these sort of more advanced yes. dictionary operations? Definitely. The second. Interesting. Can you think of like an example? Yes. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm trying to reflect on it. It's so natural to me. So <laughs> sure. It's, it's difficult to find uh, an example. Yeah, no rush. Yeah, let me give you an example. Imagine, are you familiar with JSON schema? Yeah. Just for the audience, if they are not familiar, JSON schema is sure. a way to define the specs of your data, in a sense. So you can say here I expect a map with a field A that needs to be a string and field B needs to be an integer, etc. It's really mm -hmm. important when you use when you in a when you go dynamic with the data when you use dynamic typing. You, when if you don't want to live in the wild, uh, you need to to sometimes specify what is the shape, the expected shape shape of your data. Sure. Now imagine that you want to implement um, to implement a data validation function, and you receive mm -hmm. a piece of data and a, and a JSON schema, which is also a piece of data. And now you want to to see if the data conforms to the to the schema. Mm -hmm. uh, here you are. I think you are going to to do lots of uh, algebraic things. Count the number of fields. 
maybe rename them, maybe look for a field that is named like that. Uh, maybe you want, for some reason, let's say something I do at work. For some reason, we decided that we want to have all our fields in JSON snake cased. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the schema, we want to have them, let's say, kebab cased. So you need to, sure. to be able to convert to say, okay, here you speci- in your data, you have AA underscore BB, but I know that you mean AA dash BB. So let me convert it for you. And I can do, it's just a function that can go over uh, a map and kebab all the keys. And it's really a simple nice. function to do that. But if you have a record with a, a struct where the name is not there at runtime, it's there only at compile time, there is no way for you to do that. Got it. Yeah, I mean, um, this is interesting. So we <laughs> we actually have, um, and I think you're totally right when it comes to most languages. Um, I'm trying to think of, so the only, the only way I could think, like I'm trying to think of how I would solve that problem in, um, certain languages and what's immediately coming to mind is in rock. We have a way that we can actually do that because we have a way to, that you can specify when you are decoding something, I guess. Okay. So it's not, it's not quite the same in the sense that because in rock, we only really encourage using like camel case names for everything. You, you wouldn't really say like, Oh, I want, I want to use kebab case. Well, that would be a syntax error if you tried to have kebab case <laughs> uh, like variables because it's not a I list. It's, you know. JSON and you want, yeah. you don't want your user to know that you use the rock or closure or JavaScript and you want to be tolerant and to say, okay, you can, in the JSON keys, you can use whatever case you want and I will figure out right. what you want. Yes. How would you do that in, uh, in, in rock? Yeah, so in that case, um, we have what's called a decoding format. So basically you can specify like, Here's the type that I want to decode into. And actually, you don't even have to specify the type. You can just say like, this might get into a <laughs> long tangent, but basically we have this concept of an ability. And an ability is basically, uh, I think it might be similar to protocols and closure, but I, I I only vaguely know what protocols and closure mm-hmm. are. So I might be wrong about that, but it's basically a way to say, okay, for this particular type, if I have a value with that type, there are certain functions that are going to just be available because I've got something of that type. Some of these are baked into the language and they're just part of the standard library and they're just like automatically inferred and available. And then um, if you want to, you can make your own custom types, which it customize how they implement those. So a classic example of this is equals. Like equals is one of the built-in ones. If I just say like, I have two records with a field, they each have a field called X and Y and they're both integer fields and I compare two records, it's going to use the baked in equals ability to compare them and just say like, okay, mm-hmm. they have to have the same number of fields and they have to have, they're both integers. And if they're both integers in the same number of fields and they both have the same values for those integer fields, then okay, they're equal. Otherwise they're not. Also, if, depending on if they're, you know, you might get a type mismatch from the compiler because it's a type checked language, the statically typed, uh, then, you know, whatever. So now an- there's another ability called decode. And the decode ability basically specifies how you want to go from like raw bytes into some value of this type and decoding can fail of course but assuming it succeeds you should get out whatever your you know value is this is also automatically implemented for all of the sort of like standard library types and all the like built-in types so that includes records so for example something you can do is you can say x equals decode.decode and then you just have to give it a format 
And that format can be just like JSON, something like that. That's just like, okay, this is out of decode uh, from JSON. But it can also be a function call that will say, like, I want to make a custom JSON format, which has some transformations applied to it. For example, I want to convert all of the fields from kebab case to camel case or something like that. So that's how you would do that in Rock. Having said that, it would be more work than the closure way that you described, because I'm assuming that... What I find interesting, yeah. and it's back to your first point about Java, even probably in some languages like Rock you can do, and in some languages like Java you can't. But what I find interesting is that if you just use data, it's trivial that you can. Yes. And you don't need, yeah. and you don't need any special construct to support that. <laughs> right. Yeah, this only works because like it's as concise as like json.parse in JavaScript, uh, except instead of calling json.parse, you're saying like you're calling decode passing, you know, the format I want is json because of course you could pass like csv or whatever other format you wanted. And those formats can be implemented, you know, in user space. That's not baked into the language. What's baked in is that yeah, like you said, like the language understands data and like the shapes of data. And like we use type inference to figure out like, okay, based on how you've used this thing, I see that it's a record with these fields that have these types and, and we know how to decode into that. But yeah, if we needed to make a first class, like, oh, this is a class and you need to specify all the, yeah, th this could be way more ceremonious uh, than, than it is if we didn't have this value of like, yeah, let's just, let's just default to simple data structures. Right. For me, also something, uh, uh, like an epiphany I had at the end of the writing of the book is that I started writing the book with the closure approach is the best. We should do only dynamic typing and all the rest is uh, extra ceremony. I needed extra ceremony. But the uh -huh. more I advanced in the book, the more I realized by myself, because in the book, I play both roles. The book is written mm. as a dialogue between a uh -huh. Java developer and the closure uh, mentor. And the book tells okay. their, their, their journey. And in order to make the book interesting, I, I didn't want to make the Java guy be just a yes man. Yes, you are right. It's perfect. Great, great, great. <laughs> so sometimes the guy asks, <laughs> asks tough questions. And sometimes I don't have the, <laughs> the answer, which is, I think, what makes the book interesting. Uh, anyway, by the end of writing the book, I realized that in Clojure or in any language that leverages this data-oriented programming approach, we still miss something that we have in statically typed languages and in the object-oriented mm. programming. The, the convenience, the safety, the tooling, we want that, and, but we, and we don't have it yet. And I really hope that uh, in the upcoming years, Someone will come with something that takes the best of both worlds. Instead of saying this is the best or this is the best, you should do static type languages or dynamic type languages that will. And I think something like that in a language called Ballerina that brings. I've heard of a, this. They bring a flexible type system. And flexible type systems might be the, the answer to the war between static types languages and dynamic type languages. It can yeah, try so to be the best of the, of the two, of both worlds. Yeah, I've definitely, I've had to revise my own views about like what, what static and dynamic languages mean, or not, not what they mean, but rather like 
what my mental model is of them. Because when I was like early on in my career, I did a lot of Java and then I did some like JavaScript and Perl and CoffeeScript. And like, so I, I had this sort of coarse grained pattern match of like, oh, statically typed language means Java and C++ and like kind of C. And, and like dynamically typed means JavaScript and Perl and like, you know, languages like scripting languages. I didn't really have a, an appreciation for like how much more was possible there. I just had this like, to, to quote David Nolan, like a, a a fixed idea about, you know, like this is this is what this means. And then later on, I got exposed to more statically typed languages. I'm like, oh, these can actually be quite different. And also to more dynamically typed languages. Like, oh, wow, this is like, this is a lisp. <laughs> I didn't know what a lisp was, you know, in, in early on in my career. And it's interesting to just see how they've evolved over time. Like, it seems like there's been a lot of people, and I would count myself in this, who like certain things about static typing, but are f- some combination of confused and frustrated about how few of the benefits that we've seen from like dynamic typing have sort of crossed that bridge into the like statically typed languages. And, you know, different people will have different opinions about like exactly what the most important benefits are. But um, like one of the really basic ones that, that we now has become mainstream, I think, is a, is a REPL, just having a REPL at all. Like, I mean, I, I don't know if Java does yet, but it certainly didn't like 10 plus years ago. It does now? J-Shell, right. J-Shell, okay, yeah. But to me, this is something like, you know, wh- why why didn't that exist a lot earlier? It was never a technical limitation. It was just more a cultural thing. And I think there's a lot of things like that where it's like, oh, this this could be done in a statically typed language. Maybe it's harder or maybe it's, you know, more work or something like that. But the main reason I think that it's not done is just that there has been this historical cultural divide where it's like, oh, we do things this way and then they do things that way. And, you know, that there's nothing, there's not much we can learn from each other. But I think there's actually a lot we can learn from each other. <laughs> right. For example, something that they do in ballerina, let's say you have a function uh, that calculates the, the full name of a user. Mm-hmm. So the function full name receives a user record that is expected to have a first name and a last name. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens if you bring an author record that also happens to have a first name and a last name or a manager mm-hmm. record that also has a, a first name and a last name and maybe 20 other fields. So in ballerina, yeah. the function will work. The function says, I need a record with those fields. You can yeah. bring them from wherever you want. It could be user, it could be a manager, it could be, and I think it's called structural typing. Yes. Yeah, Rock, Rock does the same thing. Um, we actually, you, you can do it either way. So by default, we do structural typing, but if you want, you can opt into being more restrictive and say, for this function, I only want to accept it has to be just these fields and no no more than that. But yeah, I, I mean, I agree that that seems like, in retrospect, kind of an obvious thing that like everybody would want. Like, what's why, why wouldn't you want to support something like that? And I guess that does come down to a cultural thing around like, should everything be like a class or I've named it and I've defined its type or even like a struct in, in C? Um or uh, should we have anonymous structural types? And I think that we should have right. anonymous structural types. <laughs> At least we should have the right to do so. I mean, yeah, you could say in my program, I will, uh, I don't know, I will have a linter that forbids them or that gives warning if you use them. Fine, but at least at the POC time when you explore, why not? Why? And I think that's the most painful thing in Java. That even when you want to do just little things, 
just little script, little experiment, you can. You are forced to use the whole machinery of uh, static classes. And even if you agree that they are, they are good, I think everybody would agree that sometimes you want to get rid of them. Well, yeah, I, I think one of the big insights that I took away from, I still don't remember which talk it was, but whichever talk where, where Rich was talking about, um, like pieces of data that travel together, I, I watching that talk, I realized that there is actually a very meaningful difference between, I just want these two values to travel together because it's convenient as mm-hmm. opposed to like, these things are part of some like completely different concept. So like, as right. an example, if I have like a user, I'm going to say record, cause that's what I'm used to. But like, if I have a user record, it's like, okay, they got a first name and a last name and you know, an email address, let's say like the reason I want those to travel together is that I'm going to have a lot of functions where it's like, Oh, I want to make use of, you know, the first name and the last name and the email, or, or maybe some subset of those, like you were saying, like, maybe I just care about the first name and last name for this function. I don't care about the email. That's fine. But I don't necessarily need them to be glued together and like stuck together and like they they must all you must always have every single one of these things. It's just like no, I it's just convenience. Like sometimes I could write my function to say I take three arguments. I take first name and last name and email. That's fine. You could just have a function right. with that signature. That's that's completely reasonable way to do it. But it's more convenient to say, give me a record that has these fields on it, and then I can just pass this user thing around and not have to pass, you know, all the strings around all the time. And same thing with like returning stuff, right? Like it's it's more convenient to return all of those with like names attached to them as opposed to like just just returning them in like a tuple or something. Something that sometimes is helpful to understand the, the benefit of that is to think about unit tests. Writing a unit test for a function that expects something that has a first name and a last name only requires you to create something that has a first name and a last name. While if you say, I need to get a user, maybe creating a user is not so simple. You need to to provide an email and an ID and a social security number and a a card and what what not. Right. One of the guys that that wrote a foreword for my book is Ryan Singer that comes from uh, Ruby on Rails. Mm. He worked at uh, Basecamp. So I mm-hmm. think he saw the, really the, the birth of Ruby on Rails. And he told me that when he, he read my book, he finally understand why it was so painful in Rails to write tests. Because in order to test a, a small function that does a little thing, he has to build the whole system and set up mm, the database yeah. blah, 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 just to... <laughs> Just a full name function. Yeah, this reminds me of, so I have a former coworker who, uh, so Rails has this ORM called Active Record. And mm-hmm. yeah, there's there's a lot of like, like fancy tricks and stuff that go on behind the scenes and Active Record will like do all these things for you automatically. And in part because of that, like wanting to be able to write tests with a lot less like upfront, like, okay, I got to get everything in this state and that state and the other state. And just like, I just want to test just a slice here and just like pass some arguments around. He made a, a tongue-in-cheek like alternative to active record called inactive record. And uh-huh. the whole point was, it's just data. <laughs> so we're not going to do any of this fancy stuff. It's just like represent things as immutable values. Anami is like the data or the simple version of, of Rails. Hmm. Haven't heard of it. Interesting. <laughs> 
One of the things that I I, I do want to note though is that like it's not it's not like it's always these are just pieces of data that happen to want to travel together and like that I want to pass them to functions. Like sometimes I do actually want to glue things together and say like these are and not only are these like an atomic unit, but also I want to hide the internal details because I probably want to change them later. So an example of this might be I'm making some sort of like custom data structure. And it's like, well, right now I internally represent this as like a linked list, but in the future I might want to switch to a hash map or a, a ray map try or something like that, hash ray map try. And like, that is a also a totally valid use case. But what I didn't understand earlier in my career is like, these are different use cases. And like, right. I now I'm like, oh no, I want both. Like I want to be able to do both of these things and at different times and like understanding which one I've got and like when I want to do it is something that took me a long time to understand. <laughs> right. Not, and I think that not every, every struct represents data. Hmm. Like what's an example of... I don't know good. if you use yeah. struct to represent it for the internal representation of a binary tree. Mm-hmm. It's not data. It's something else. It's a data structure. It's whatever. It's not what we call data. I see. So data, it's like, like metadata and like... Right. It, it, it's, it's implementation details that don't right. actually have to do with like the information that right. you care about. Data is, yeah. uh, I think the, the best definition is like facts about the, the world. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, underscore, underscore, left uh, child and underscore, under, underscore, right child is not a fact about the world. It's something else. Right. But uh, the user, yeah. the idea of the user, it's a fact about the world. So that's data. And I totally agree with you that using immutable data structures or whatever to represent as an internal representation for a binary tree is probably a very a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, one, one of the interesting things that I, I still am I'm not sure exactly what the right answer should be is like, are functions data? I can see arguments either way. Like on the one hand, I can see an argument that like, a function, especially a pure function, essentially is like a mapping. It's 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 like a, a mm. one person, I forget who said this, but like I heard someone say at a conference once that essentially a pure function is exactly the same thing as a hash map. It's just not a hash. It's like, it's just a map between input and output. And it's like an infinitely large map potentially, or, or like, no, it's not infinitely large. It's, it's the size of the domain, which is like all the different possible arguments you could give it. And then there's the codomain, which is the, the output space of possible outputs. So it's, it's like kind of like a gigantic map. The mapping, nothing, nothing. It has nothing to do with the code or the logic. Mathematically, there is no code of the function. Sinus X, it's not the code that calculates the sinus. Mathematically, sinus X is a mapping between uh, angles to Something between uh, you know minus one and one. Right, right, right. Code. Yeah. There is no body of the in mathematics. In, in programming, we use the body to implement the, the mapping because it's more uh, efficient in terms of memory, I guess, than having an infinite. Or... <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it, and it actually is implementable, which is an important, you know, <laughs> like you can actually get it to work. Yeah. So, and and I also like I years later I heard Chris Jenkins give that really succinct that I love like definition of a pure function is like, it's just a lookup table. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, so on the one hand, it's like, well, by that definition, it kind of seems like this is, you know, a function could be thought of as a data structure. Like it, it is sort of like 
storing information about the world it's just like it's a constant data structure to some extent where it's like well it's this it's this gigantic map that's sort of statically known it's like a hard-coded immutable constant of like mm-hmm. you know every single input you know we've got, we've got every single input enumerated conceptually and then every single output enumerated and that's that's our hash map that's our map it's our mapping is you know between these right. values and you know but i could also see the argument that it's like well but if it's if it's always just a hard coded constant, does that mean that like you know the, the constant for gravity is that data? Does that I mean I guess it's information about the world, so yes, but I don't know it. It it seems like on the one hand it it sort of feels right, but also doesn't feel right because it also feels like functions are special. But maybe I shouldn't think that way. I don't know. <laughs> I can tell you that in closure we ask the opposite question. Interesting. So in closure, hash maps can behave as functions. Oh, so interesting. Closure is a lisp, right? So the first yeah. element in the parentheses is expected to be an, op- an operator. It's a macro or a function. Right. Or, so, or a special form, right? Like if or something or like that. Form. So the, the yeah. simplest way to retrieve a field from a map is to use the function called get. So get, okay. map, and then the field. Mm-hmm. But there is another way is to put the map as the first element in the parentheses. So the map behave behave ah. as a function. Interesting. So, okay. So it's exactly what you said, but the, in the opposite. A map could behave as a function. That actually kind of reminds me of like the uh the uh, Alan K style of object orientation where it's like you're sending a message to the map almost. <laughs> yeah. Uh although it's not it's not an object cuz it's not like a, you know, thing storing mutable state. It's an immutable map, but um right. Yeah, at least the way you're calling it. That's interesting. And also, that. keywords are, are functions in Clojure or behave as functions. Keywords as field names, you can use them mm-hmm. as functions. So if you want to retrieve the first name of a user, you have three ways. The first way is to get user first name. Mm-hmm. The second way is user first name. And the third mm-hmm. way is first name user yeah, so so Haskell has one of those. Um, like that's how you get a field off of a record in Haskell is like when you define the record, it'll give you a function called first name, and then mm. you call first name passing the record, and it gets you back the. Um, and it has yeah, the lens so that you can also set. You can make right? lenses to yeah to do that if you want yeah, but yeah, that's the way Haskell does records is not usually considered a something that other languages want to emulate. <laughs> it's got a lot of downsides because I mean so in part because when you generate those functions, that means that at least in Haskell, and I know this wouldn't be the same in Clojure, but like now if you want to make something else called first name in that entire module, you can't like the whole module that's taken now by the record. And so like, if you have something called a record with a field called email in it, well, now you have that email function that's in scope and therefore like at the top level. And so like nothing else in that whole module can be named email. So it's actually pretty annoying that they, they do it that way. But neither here nor there. <laughs> Back to what you your questions whether f- your question whether uh, functions could be considered as data. So maybe if you are God, okay, a function is it's just a hash map. But we are human, <laughs> and we make mistakes. And I think that functions are not data in the sense that they are opaque. Mm. I mean, you cannot know a priori what is going to be the output for an input. You have to read the code, or sometimes you even have to execute the code because you think that your function will return two when it gets one, but maybe you have a bug 
and when you send one, you get 2.5. While in the hash map, it's uh, transparent. The mapping is transparent. In functions, the, ma the mapping is opaque. Right. So it's <laughs> it's a good point. So it's 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 like even if you want to say, okay, yes, technically we could say that functions are data. That's a risky thing to do. And to like try and put them in the same bucket as like a, an actual hash map, because right. you might end up being overconfident in like what, what the implications of that are <laughs> in right. practice. And I'm, and I'm not sure I'm right, but somehow to me, it makes me think about the halting problem. Meaning you cannot yeah, yeah. write right. a function that receives a function as input and will answer whether the function will halt or not. Right. Sure. Because, yeah. Because you never know, in a sense. Now that's true in in like a Turing complete language, but actually, like there are some languages. I'm I'm thinking immediately of Dahl uh, by Gabriela Gonzalez, which is basically a, a language designed for um, mm. generating like configuration files and stuff like that. And it is it's a functional language. Everything's immutable, and it's total, meaning that like it's it's actually. So it doesn't have generalized recursion, which is super inconvenient because it means like if you make a tree data structure, I mean, I've seen some code and I even like tried porting it to Elm just to see what it would look like. So like make a tree data structure and it is not pleasant <laughs> uh, because if you can't like do arbitrary recursion, a lot of things just, you know, or which is like how you would get the equivalent of like a while loop or, or some or for loop, something like that. There's just a lot of things that are like less ergonomic. So there's a pretty big downside there, but it is at least true that in a language like that, you do actually, like the halting problem doesn't apply because you don't have, it's not Turing complete, which means that you could actually, well, you wouldn't even need to analyze it to ask whether it terminates. The answer is yes, it does terminate because it, it has to. Although I guess it could run out of memory. That's something that you can't How do you spell these analyze seven? in that language. D-H-A-L-L. D H A L L. Yeah. Interesting. And in what sense is it total? So it basically like does not support general recursion or any other constructs that basically you can't write a doll program that where whether or not it continues executing is conditional on something at runtime. So you can't get stuck in an infinite loop or infinite recursion. It's just not expressible in the language. There's no way to do that. If you tried to do that, you would get some sort of error at compile time. So for example, you cannot write a program that count the number of elements in the list. You have to, to bound the, the max size of the list. I have not used doll enough to... Well, so, so certainly I don't think you can... There is some way that you can do something like that. So like for built-in data structures, I'm assuming they have like a fold or a reduce or something like that, which would just let you do that because yeah. those those definitely terminate. I think the it would be more accurate to say that like so like in, in Clojure, for example, you have the the classic cons list, right? The linked list that's like cons cells. You have like cons and, and nil and then you cons a bunch of things together. You can't even create one of those data structures in that way in DAL. If you want to do it, I think there's like an FAQ entry, if I remember. I've... Uh, I don't know. G Gabriella wrote something about that. I was, I was more interested in the opposite uh, thing, meaning what can you do? Oh, what can you do? I mean, you can do all, all sorts of other things. Yeah. I mean, you can see some examples on the homepage, but it's really like basically designed to be a language that lets you replace things like YAML and uh -huh. JSON for configuration files, where you want 
actually the power of being able to write functions and stuff like that. But you're not trying to do any kind of effects ever. You're literally just mm-hmm. like, I want to spit out, you know, <laughs> like a configuration, like a static configuration file. So it's a and and her her sort of design goal in creating the language was I want to have functions and be able to like reuse code and you know combine things together, but I want to have the property that since it's essentially a configuration file that I know that it's never going to hang. It's always going to like, it's always going to work. Yeah. Uh, And I guess there is still technically the possibility because, you know, computers have finite memory that like you could run a doll program and it could run out of memory and stuff like that. But yeah. But I think that I, what we, I I heard you say that the language is total. Yes. So I guess it means that you can do lots of things and there is a formal definition of what do you mean by a lot that it's, they can prove that the language is not useless. Yeah, we actually use Doll at work, so like it's definitely, it's definitely possible to use it for for plenty of useful things. It, it, you know, when it comes to configuration format generation. But uh, yeah, I, I guess I don't have a concise way to <laughs> explain like what what it uh, what it means. Is there a term for a bit less than Turing complete? I mean, like what, what's the what's the definition of Turing complete? No, I mean, what's the defi- what's the term for language that is capable enough for doing interesting things but does not suffer from the halting problem. Oh, I think that's I think that's just total. I mean to, total means yeah. like basically doesn't doesn't the halting problem doesn't apply to it. Uh-huh. Um okay. it's it's like for all and actually I I, I guess like I, I think when people say total language, I think what they mean is like with an asterisk of like assuming it doesn't run out of memory. Like you could go even more hardcore than that and say like this has to have a language level notion of available system resources and track all possible system resources it would be using such that it won't even run the program unless it for sure will not run out of memory um, or, or anything like that along the way, which I guess is something that you might want. And I, as I understand it, there are like static analysis tools for C and stuff like that out there that people will use in like embedded systems and stuff where it's like, it's really critical that like, you know, the pacemaker in your heart doesn't run out of memory mm-hmm. ever, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. But usually when people are talking about total languages, what they mean is basically just like doesn't have loops and doesn't have general recursion because those are the things that can hang. And doll doesn't have either of those. Uh, again, you really uh, triggered my curiosity with the questions you ask about whether functions are data. And I'm thinking about a language like uh, assembly, mm. like in the first days of programming, where sure. you run machine level, uh, machine language commands, you know, copy registers, increment by one, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I think that back then they didn't have the notion of function. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's just jumps. <laughs> or labels and jumps. Right. And after that, I think Pascal introduced the notion of procedure, which is still not a function, which is, I don't know, maybe an aggregation of machine commands that you can re-execute or something like that. Yeah. I think it might have been Fortran. I, I, whatever. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> it's one of those early yeah. languages. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what did I say? I meant to say. Pascal. I, I, I think it was, it was, Pascal, it doesn't matter. It's one yeah, of them. I, I take your point. Procedural was next. <laughs> yeah. And I think that, Oh, yeah. Now I remember that the conditional form, what today we call if, in a sense, right. was, was one of the innovation of Lisp. The ability yeah, to true. treat it as a, as a thing and not only a, 
so in that sense, Lisp is a is a yeah is a functional programming language. Um, yeah, I mean Lisp. Uh, Lisp was the so that 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 later became the structured programming, and Lisp was the first one to introduce that, and also uh, the first language to be garbage collected. Right. Right. Another aspect of Lisp is that it's homo-iconic, meaning yes. that the code for the functions, the code itself could be regarded as data. It has a stru- the same yeah. structure as the structure of the data. And I'm not sure it, if, it's, if it relates to your question or not. Uh, I would say no, but, but maybe... Maybe uh, when you write a, a pure function, maybe it makes sense that the code for this function is nothing more than a list with operators that cooperate together. So maybe there is a close yeah. relationship between the fact that Lisp is almost iconic and the fact that Lisp is a functional language at the at the the essence of Lisp is a functional language, but I'm not sure. Maybe yeah. I'm talking nonsense. I <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot. We you know, we could go for a long time on these things. Yeah, and anything else we should uh, we should talk about, like related to your book or anything else uh, before we wrap up? Yes, maybe something interesting. Uh, JavaScript. We so in the book, all the code snippets that I use are in JavaScript, just because there are so many JavaScript developers out there, and anybody can read JavaScript. And there are, in fact, there is a proposal for the next version of JavaScript that brings immutability uh, as part of the language. So there is a proposal called records and tuples. And once once the proposal is uh, approved, we will have the ability to manipulate natively immutable JavaScript uh, objects. And I'm really excited by that. And I've contacted the, the champion of this proposal, which happens to be French, like myself. And it's not a surprise that he has been—he was a closureist for a while. And that's <laughs> there you go. So I'm not sure that closure will ever be the most uh, popular uh, programming language. Probably not. But I'm quite sure that closure will continue to influence. Uh, many, many programming languages. Absolutely. I think it's already been very influential. Great. Uh, well, Jonathan, thank, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. This is a great conversation. Thank you for having me, Richard. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you.